Over the last few Sundays, as we have approached our annual celebration of the birth of Christ, we've had several voices proclaiming what that birth will mean. We've heard from voices that have been centuries apart. We have heard from the prophet Isaiah, who preceded Jesus by hundreds of years. We heard from John the Baptist, who was a contemporary of Jesus, actually his cousin. And we heard from the Apostle Paul, who appears on the scene really um, to us just after the death of Jesus. They all had significant words to share about the world-altering change that Jesus the Christ would bring to earth and the ways that we can prepare our hearts to receive him. This morning, we have another story preparing us for the coming of Jesus the Christ. This morning's story looks at the arrival of Jesus from the perspective, the point of view of his earthly father, Joseph. Joseph has much to teach us about following God in Christ, but intriguingly to me, he never says a word. In the entire New Testament, we never hear a recorded word from Joseph. Very unusual for a male. Instead, we learn from his actions and from his quiet, obedient response we learn that to be a follower of Christ means to, open, to be open to the strangely new. Since this story is all too familiar to most of us, it's worth taking a moment to try to strip away some of that familiarity, to try to imagine what this experience was really like for Joseph. It is to try to especially replace our mindset as 21st century Seattleites with the mindset of a first century Jewish male living in a small village in Palestine, engaged to a young Jewish woman, woman betrothed actually to a young Jewish woman. The NIV doesn't translate it that way in our opening verse, but that's sort of the, the technical language that is used. Is this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph. They say pledged to be married, but that concept of betrothal is very important and it's very strange to us. In first century Palestine, the steps to marriage were dramatically different from our experience. William Barclay, a Scottish pastor and, and writer last century, in his commentary on this story of Joseph, um, he points out that engagement often occurred when the two were children, even young children. Marriages were arranged by parents or a, an actual matchmaker. It was considered too important of a decision to be left to young people. So when these two children who were engaged uh, reached an age of acceptable maturity, they had the opportunity to become betrothed. 
This was essentially their time to affirm the decision that was made for them by their parents or the matchmaker. And uh, according to Barclay, even the woman actually had an opportunity to say, no, thank you. Um, either one could break the engagement. However, if they both agreed to the arrangement, they became betrothed. And betrothal was legally binding, just as legally binding as marriage. And it lasted one year, and during that year, they were even called husband and wife. Now, here is where things diverge even further from our standards today. If at any point in that period of betrothal, or actually even before that, but especially during that period of betrothal, it was discovered that the wife had even had sex with another man, it was grounds for a legal breaking of the betrothal, a divorce officially. Even if the two betrothed had had sex before the wedding and it got out, word got out, that would have been scandalous and really marked them for their social interactions. But we hear worse in verse 18. Before they came together, Mary was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. So this was the worst imaginable. Mary was pregnant and with someone else's child. This was not Joseph's child. So not only was Joseph allowed to legally divorce Mary upon discovering this, in the older law, in Deuteronomy chapter 22, it said that if a woman is found to not be a virgin, that the men of her town, and this is a quote from the law, the men of her town shall stone her to death. A little bit different than our times. At the time of Mary's pregnancy, it's, it's unsure whether that was still an option or not, stoning the person to death, whether it was a possibility. But it shows the gravity of the situation for Mary and for Joseph. So think of how you would feel if you were Joseph. You've been engaged to Mary for years. You've got a decent life all mapped out before you. You'll have the wedding. You'll have kids. You'll grow old together in this town that you've grown up to, surrounded by all sorts of family and friends. All is set. You and Mary have both agreed to the betrothal. Your future is laid out. And then you find out she's pregnant. Pregnant. Your whole world and your vision for your future life is gone. And she says that she hasn't been unfaithful. She says that an angel from God came to give her a message and that God is the father of her child. Now, remember, this is all before an angel has visited Joseph. This is, he's just hearing this. Years ago, the poet W.H. Auden wrote uh, an extended series of poems that he gathered together in a, in a thing called For the Time Being. He envisioned it as kind of this 
theatrical production about our story, the birth of Jesus. He called it a Christmas oratorio. He, uh, in one poem, The Temptation of Joseph, he imagines Joseph on stage and there's sort of off stage in the wings, a Greek chorus. You know, these people that sort of pipe up with stuff that you don't want to hear. Um, they, goad, they goad the people on stage into all sorts of things. So I won't read all of Joseph's parts, but in this series of sort of back and forth between what Joseph says and this Greek chorus says in the wings, I'll read the chorus's part. Joseph you have heard what Mary says occurred. Yes, it may be so. Is it likely? No. They come back again later. Mary may be pure, but Joseph, are you sure? How is one to tell? Suppose, for instance, well, maybe, maybe not. But Joseph, you know what your world, of course, will say about you anyway. I love this because this is all the stuff that you know is going through Joseph's mind. I mean, how can you believe the truth of this story? Auden gives voice, I believe, to the things that Joseph was likely thinking. Now, there's no need to uh, express this outwardly, but how do you think you would have responded if you were Joseph? How would you have responded to Mary? And again, remember, this is before Joseph has had any vision or dream from the angel. Matthew tells us what Joseph actually did in verse 19. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Now, that's important. If, even if this had been the actual outcome of what had happened, that still would have actually been a very gracious gesture on the part of Joseph for the time. Dale Bruner, a, a contemporary author, writes, by this decision to give Mary a letter of divorce quietly, unguilty Joseph was prepared to take some of the social shame and personal guilt of the failed betrothal upon himself without complaint. And precisely that kind of decision is Christian righteousness, according to Matthew's gospel. Righteousness is not so much or only the determination to be personally impeccable. Uh, Bruner notes that that is a frequent misunderstanding. It's not so much a determination to be personally impeccable as it is the determination, if necessary, at one's own expense to bear the guilt of others. To divorce Mary quietly would have been the lawful thing for Joseph to do, and it would have been a gracious thing for him to do. But it is at this moment that Joseph's world and his vision for the future are even further destroyed. We hear in verses 20, 21, after he considered this, divorcing her quietly, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. 
She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. By Joseph giving the name, it was his way of acknowledging (coughs) that the child is his as well. Because he will save his people from their sins. That's what the angel says to Joseph. This strange message from God. Remember, Joseph doesn't even have this little part that we get. Uh, At this point, Matthew adds a little commentary about what is happening here. This all took place to fulfill what Isaiah had said years ago, that a virgin shall be with child and give birth to a son, and he will be called essentially God with us. Joseph doesn't know anything about that. He just knows his wife is pregnant. This angel shows up and says, no, you're not getting rid of her. You're going to marry her. Again, I love Auden's interaction between Joseph and he just names, we don't ever hear the name of the angel, but, but uh, Auden gives it the name Gabriel because Gabriel does show up a lot in the scriptures. But um, here's Joseph interacting with God and Gabriel. Where are you, Father? Where? Caught in the jealous trap of an empty house, I hear as I sit alone in the dark, everything, everything. The drip of the bathroom tap, the creak of the sofa spring, the wind in the air shaft, all making the same remark stupidly, stupidly, over and over again. Father, what have I done? Answer me, Father. How can I answer the tactless wall or the pompous furniture now? Answer them. Gabriel, no, you must. How then am I to know, Father, that you are just? Give me one reason. Gabriel, no. All I ask is one important and elegant proof that what my love had done was really at your will and that your will is love. Gabriel, no. You must believe, be silent, and sit still. That's basically all Joseph gets. What the angel of the Lord is asking Joseph to do goes against everything that he thought a good and God-fearing person should do. What the angel is asking Joseph to do is essentially, as far as Joseph understands things, condoning sin. She's become pregnant outside of marriage. Joseph runs smack into the wall of one of God's most incomprehensible truths. Not only are God's ways not our ways, as we heard in that Hebrew First Testament reading from Isaiah, not only are God's ways not our ways, but God's ways are not bound by what we think God's ways are. The Reverend Jill Dullfield, who is a a lectionary commentator, puts it this way. Following God entails humility, the willingness to set aside deeply held assumptions, the ability to abandon our own plans and step into God's disturbing, dizzying new thing, the strength to take a stand and make a choice that runs counter to common wisdom or cultural norms or even religious rules. 
the courage to imagine that God is at work even when we are reeling from the loss of what had been our hoped-for future. This is the exact same experience that the Apostle Paul had after experiencing the presence of Christ. Before meeting the risen Christ and hearing from God directly, Paul thought all Gentiles were doomed by God, that they were banished from God's love and salvation. And then, after experiencing Christ and hearing from God directly, Paul ends up being called by God to serve the Gentile world specifically. And that's why it's so amazing when we know Paul's history that we have in that passage of Romans, him proclaiming Paul a servant of Jesus Christ, called as an apostle to be set apart for the gospel, for sharing the good news. And then, as it says, verse 5, through Jesus and for his name's sake, we, and he's sort of using the royal we, it's Paul and Barnabas and such, but mostly Paul, through him, we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus. That was just completely opposite of anything that Paul ever thought that a good, decent person would do. Paul was drawn out of much of what he thought was good and right into this strange and new world. And this is the same change that we see with Joseph. Considering the enormity of all that Joseph's decision to obey the angel would cost him, the brevity of verse 24 is kind of jarring. When Joseph woke up after the stream, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. That's it. Again, no words from Joseph. He just hears, listens, and does it, even though this is such a strange message. And of course, this is just a small echo of what we know Mary had to decide as well in carrying Christ to begin with. From Mary, from Joseph, from Paul, again, we learn that being a follower of God, especially in Christ, means to be open to the strangely new. As we approach Christmas, this strange newness is an aspect of the story that most of us could benefit from dwelling with a little while. We have domesticated the story so much that many of us forget the wildness it contains. Mary gave birth. I mean, anyone who has experienced that from either side of it, father's side, mother's side of it, knows that that in and of itself is wild and messy and sweaty and lots of other things. And it was in a barn. She gave birth in a barn. And this newborn baby is proclaimed to be the God of the universe, squeezed into this puckered, screaming little ball of flesh and blood that just came out of his mother's womb. And when this little baby grows up to be a man, his whole life was full of this strange newness 
He worked on the Sabbath. That was not done. He hung out with prostitutes and lepers and people who worked at Comcast. (laughs) He told his followers to love and pray for those who hated them and were out to get them. And then three days after he was dead and buried, he appeared again, strangely new. Everything about the story of the birth of Christ reminds us that we never know when or where or how Christ will show up in our lives. Nor can we predict what Christ might call us to. From Joseph and others, we learn that to be a follower of God in Christ means to be open always to the strangely new. Merry Christmas.